Hi guys and welcome to this week's episode of the In The Hub podcast, brought to you by Playbox Technology UK. This week we're speaking to Linda Duberley, publisher and editor at River Tribe magazine, as well as founder and director of Duberley Media. Linda is an experienced print and broadcast journalist, working with Sky News, CNBC, Fox News and ITV throughout her career. She now heads up River Tribe magazine, whilst also delivering presentation coaching and brand storytelling services to CEOs in a variety of industries. Hope you enjoy. There we go. So welcome to the In The Hub podcast today, Linda. How, how are you doing today? How are you feeling? Feeling good, Neil. That's really good to hear. And, and just for a little bit of background before we do start with some of the main questions about your career and, and experiences... How did you actually kind of get to the point of having a career in, in broadcasting and, and media? Where did that all begin for you? Well, it was quite a strange route in, actually, because I was doing A-levels at school. One of them was in art, specifically theatrical costume design. And I um, got a place at the London College of Fashion to do design. I noticed that they did um, a course in magazine journalism, which I swapped into and on that course, I had an excellent journalism teacher called Jean Sylvan Evans, who was brilliant, fierce, but brilliant. She recommended a book called uh, Newsman's English, one of five volumes written by the late and very great Sir Harold Evans, who was the editor of the Sunday Times. And I read that book and it literally changed the course of my working life. Wow. So, yeah, it was kind of it, it wasn't planned in any way from the start. It was just kind all. of... I, I wouldn't even say that I particularly like writing at that age. <laughs> yeah. I, I went down to train then. I got uh, what's called indentures. It's like an apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. Three years on a very big uh, regional paper called the Western Mail, which was owned by the Thompson Regional Newspaper Group then. Yeah. And you got a classic training in news journalism, uh, subbing, feature writing, hard news reporting, everything. And then the traditional thing to do is is what I did next, is you go to Fleet Street, you do shifts. If you're good enough, you know, you'll get what was called a summer relief contract. And then if you're good enough on that, you get a staff job. So, um, and it was real dead men's shoes. I mean, you you literally, you literally had to wait till someone died. But I was extremely fortunate. Um, and I got a staff job on the Daily Mail. Yeah, brilliant stuff. And, and sometimes it just proves that the, the value of having a good teacher, because I remember going back to, to when I was in kind of sick form and, and learning, just how much difference a good teacher would make to a subject is is just incredible, yeah. isn't it? You can never really underestimate that. Um, yeah. And then I guess the next question I really wanted to ask was, was, was it always going to be broadcasting and, and, and broadcast journalism for you? But clearly, it, you know, it wasn't always going to be that, was it? But could you imagine yourself in any other career now? Uh, Yes, I can. (laughs) (laughs) But the the thing was that I was a real, uh, very committed newspaper journalist. So I was incredibly lucky um, to get that first job on the Daily Mail because so I was the first woman to be appointed to the newsroom for about five years. Um, Then I went to a Today newspaper, which had just started as a royal correspondent. Then I moved back to the Mail on Sunday as a senior reporter. And I carried on working in newspapers. And I think if Sky News hadn't launched, that's where I would have stayed. But you know what it's like when you're in your mid-20s? You kind of want to try new stuff all the time. 
it was the dawn of 24 hour news. So I went along and I met the then head of news, John O'Lone, and it sounded like a really interesting proposition. So I joined the team. Oh, brilliant stuff. And it's interesting you touched on Sky there. I kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit more. Um, and, and just what those kind of early days in Sky News was like, you know, was was it kind of touch and go with, with news and, and the editing processes or, or was it a relatively well-oiled machine even in those those kind of early days? I mean, I think considering we were in a in a kind of warehouse building in a mudfield in Isleworth, it actually all worked really, really well. And and I think those Australians that went in there and set the whole thing up were just so fantastic because culturally, I can't quite imagine English people sort of having that sort of frontier mentality. It was really, really interesting. And uh, I became a presenter very quickly, which is another unusual move. Normally you'd be a researcher, producer, reporter, then presenter. But I think someone dropped out and I stepped in as the overnight presenter. So I had a little bit of training a couple of weeks before we went live and then I became a presenter. And I must say, I was very ambivalent about doing it. I wasn't one of those girls that, you know, was in school production or did in public speaking or was in the school choir. I designed the sets, helped make the sets, did the props, did the costumes. I was always a backroom kind of girl. But I absolutely loved working at Sky. And I can remember one story where um, we were covering the release of the Guildford Four at the Old Bailey. And I was told to get up there as fast as I could and get myself into the public gallery because the press in, in the number one court where the hearing was were locked in until one o'clock and we wanted to go live at midday. And I can remember running down the road, <laughs> just pelting down the road and charging in, getting my place in the public gallery. And I had short, fast shorthand, which is unusual. And so very unusual now. And I remember taking down the notes and thinking, oh my God, you know, this is just an incredible story. And running outside, and I couldn't stop and check my notes with the Press Association. No one had ever done it before. No one had ever run out. My notebook's there, my shorthand notes in front of me. I just have to hope that this is all okay. So I did the live broadcast, and I can remember BBC, ITV, a couple of other people. Suddenly it dawned on them that I went live at midday and they had to wait till one. And that's when you understood, really understood, front and centre, that actually 24-hour news had arrived. Yes, yeah, 100%. You've kind of showcased through all those stories. I I love your ability to just throw yourself into things. I think apprehension is is what stops a lot of people from from obviously advancing into different types of careers, getting getting promoted and and things like that. and it just seems like you've always kind of thrown yourself front line and, and it's really paid off for you, essentially, uh, which is great stories to hear. Um, so obviously you, you kind of then moved on from Sky um, into CNBC, uh, Fox News and ITV. Um, so I just wanted to ask, has there kind of been like a highlight project for you or, or a kind of event that you've covered uh, during your career that really stands out to you as kind of like a landmark uh, occasion for you? And, and why is that? Yeah, I think uh, just, I think when I was at Sky, there were, there are several. When I was at Sky, I covered the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I, I think that was really uh, mesmeric uh, a few days for me because it was, you know, I'd crossed over Checkpoint Charlie. East Berlin was still like the spy came in from the coals and it, it was very atmospheric and it was a big, big moment in history. We had to do lots of live broadcasts. It was really, really interesting. 
and I stayed at Sky and then I moved to Hong Kong to live in Hong Kong and I became the Asia Bureau Chief of Fox News. And at that point, I think two, there were two big stories that, that really affected me. Uh, the first was the death of Deng Xiaoping, who's the kind of the last of the long marches with Chairman Mao that brought China into the modern era. Um, and I remember driving across Tiananmen Square late at night and I'd taken a big risk going there because no one in New York believed that he was going to die and I believed he was going to die and I packed up the edit gear, the editor and the producer and he did die. <laughs> he died eight hours after yeah. we landed. And then um, I of course covered the Hong Kong handover which was pretty spectacular and a big, big moment in history when you saw the PLA troops coming in across the border in the buses and Tung Chi Wah leading the celebrations uh, when the territory was handed back um, to the Chinese. But I think the, the moment that, that really struck me the most was when I was on Tonight with Trevor McDonald and I was actually in the States in Miami and I was covering a story about undercover plastic surgeons. Uh, I, I was covering it as an undercover reporter the plastic surgeons had been, they had a special squad in Miami trying to track these cowboys down. And I looked up at the TV screen just before breakfast to see the first plane fly into the Twin Towers. And I, I remember getting up, getting the producer, because they'd been filming since five o'clock that morning and they came and didn't know anything about it. So I got into the high car with them and said, we're gonna drive to New York. And they said, we are in Miami. I said, I repeat, we are driving to New York. And so we got in the car, it took 27 hours um, and we got there because no one could fly across the Atlantic. No, of so course. it's very, yeah. very important I did that yeah. drive and uh, did a live shot with Jonathan Dimbleby looking onto the burning towers. And then I stayed there for maybe a month, um, particularly with the Spanish Harlem fire crew uh, yeah. and doing a kind of documentary because the fire crews there, as you may know, or you probably do know, I don't, you're very young. So I yeah, I was, I was very, very young. Yeah. But, but looking back on it, yeah, it, it was horrific. They lost so many men. It was, you know, there were, yeah. there were only half a dozen left in that firehouse and it was crucifyingly sad actually. And um, I remember flying back home with a producer, several producers, Trevor McDonald had come over to anchor and, um, and that was a very big moment. I remember calling home and my father picked up the phone and said, you always said when you were a young girl, young reporter, you wanted a front seat in history. And here you yeah, are. 100%. Here you are. Yeah, because I can't, you kind of recalling that story, I can't even comprehend, uh, you know, being someone who, who witnesses that as a spectator. But But you guys having to, you know, witness that, hear that news, think, right, we've got to go and be on the front line now. It's just insane. And I, I'd, I'd said, I, I'd, you know, done a bit of research and looked back on it. I was only probably about three or four years old at the time. But th when I look back on YouTube now, when I do this research, it's these kind of news reporters that I'm watching from obviously the time. And, and that's what's in all the documentaries and, and the history books, essentially. It's what the news coverage was at the time. So it really has kind of sealed that place in history, hasn't it? Which I think is absolutely amazing. And it will serve to kind of educate people going forwards, um, like me. Um, so obviously, during your career at ITV, I just wanted to touch on on your involvement with as a um, publisher and editor at, at River Tribe magazine as well. Um, 
so you had quite a lot going on, really, didn't you? <laughs> you don't seem the kind of person who'd like to sit still at any point. Um, uh, for anyone who's, who doesn't already know, could you just kind of introduce us to, to River Tribe as a magazine? What, what is it that you guys do? Oh, so I, when I, I, I carried on freelance, I, I worked permanently for, for Tonight with Jeff McDonald for about seven years. And I left, but carried on work, doing a bit of freelance work for them. And I worked then, as a lot of people do, as a communications consultant. Uh, doing media training, presentation coaching, storytelling, that kind of thing. And about three years, four and a half years ago, I set up a local magazine because I'd seen a lot of ad mags and, and I thought that there was a way of creating a content-led magazine. Uh, and I lived in Richmond. I thought it would have the readership, it, um, it, it, it you know, but get a good readership. So I thought of a name, River Tribe, and um, my family helped put some money in, and I set up uh, a magazine that, that's distributed across Richmond and West London. And um, COVID came along just as we hit the, our target, really, and we'd done the most successful edition we'd ever done, and uh, we, we had the best ad revenue we'd ever had, and we had some really good stories, and then we had to suspend publication. So um, it, it was uh, very, very uh, upsetting, actually. Uh, but we could, because we knew we couldn't print, because the print works closed, we knew we couldn't distribute because the distributor closed. And then even when they opened, I still wasn't quite sure what was going on with advertisers. So we are in fact going to relaunch the magazine and I'm putting it together again now. I'm doing the cover shoot um, shortly and we're, I'm just processing copy and getting everything into the pipeline because I think right now is probably a good time to launch a publication that's content led and that's focused on the community. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I had to keep the wolf in the door. So I decided to do some brand storytelling. And I greatly admire people like Don Miller, who is the CEO of StoryBrand, uh, who was once a, a screenplay writer for films and television. And I could see that actually a lot of the stuff he talks about in his book, StoryBrand, um, is very, very similar to the stuff that I learned on Tonight with Trevor McDonald, because it's a half an hour of television. There has to be a structure. Uh, there has to be key ingredients. And when you deviate from that plan, you, you start to lose viewers. So I looked at his book and I looked at the way he did stuff and I thought I can probably do that. He, he works with very, very big companies, global companies, but I definitely think there's a need amongst SMEs to, to really understand what their purpose is, what their reason for being is, what their story is, and, and to find a way of pushing the story out there because a large percentage, the majority of small businesses fail. Um, they often fail because their business plan isn't well thought out enough, but they also fail because they don't understand their story. So I've been really lucky. I've done um, uh, Superstructure Engineers, which is a top structure engineering company. I've done Travel Wrap, which is a cashmere luxury accessory company, which kind of goes back to the heart of where I started when I was 19 yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and a couple of other brands. And, and I've really, really been able to, uh, I learned a lot and I hope that I help those brands learn a lot about their story 
and and I think it's something journalists can do well. So I'm hoping to run those two things side by side, brand storytelling and the magazine together. Yeah, 100%. And, and when COVID kind of hit, like you said, and, and it was so much kind of scrambling around to find out what, what printmakers were doing and, and et cetera, did that really give you a chance to kind of sit back and, and reflect on what it was that you wanted to go forwards with? Or was it very much, you know, you just wanted to get straight in the thick of it, sort everything out? Or, or... Well, I, I'd i just moved and I was in the middle of building work. I mean, and that only got finished two days before lockdown. And yeah. then my daughter, who's doing architecture at Edinburgh University, I was trying to get her out of Scotland and had to drive and meet her. So it was the whole thing was very tense. Um, but I did take a step back and I did think about what I wanted to do going forward. I honestly did not believe that I could relaunch the magazine. So I had to think very clearly about how I was going to earn money. So the whole thing about brand storytelling fascinated me. I, I knew I could do media training. I knew I could do public speaking, coaching, presentation, training, that kind of thing. Um, but I wanted to do something that would, that can get scale. And the problem with, with doing media training is you can build a very good reputation as an individual, but it's very difficult to scale and to build a business. So I think that um, brand storytelling is a very, very interesting sector that I want to investigate even further. I don't think it's very far different from launching a local magazine because all, you have to lift the lid on a community. You have to understand what, what makes the community tick. You have to understand what their story is. You have to start, understand sub-stories that, that filter down underneath it. So I think one enhances the other. And during lockdown, down, I think I was able to crystallise those thoughts properly. Yeah, 100%. I did. We had a chat a little bit earlier last week about storytelling. I went off and, and actually gave it a bit of thought. Um, and just realised how many companies, small and big, are doing some absolutely brilliant things with storytelling now that they've actually kind of took it in into their culture and yeah. then really thought about what their story and what their narrative is. And I, I thought, you know, who who are the perfect people to to kind of advise companies on this, to consult companies on this and help them with it? And it is these people who've, who've been crafting narratives all their lives, you know, for print and, and television and other forms of media. Um, so I think that's absolutely brilliant. And, and, you know, I love where you're going with that. Um, I, I did have a few questions about the kind of companies that you deal with in, in terms of that. Is it, is it pretty much just anything that, that you feel like you can help? How do you mean exactly? What, what what companies, what types of companies do I deal with? Yeah, so so in terms of industries, is there a particular industry you want to specialise in or is it just anyone who, who you know you feel that you can add value to with, with storytelling? Well, I must say that I felt very at home dealing with the luxury cashmere wrap company. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, I bet, yeah. Travel wrap, it, you see, was interesting to me because I'd done textile science as part of my course at the London College of Fashion. So there was, so so I could park that while I concentrated on the story because all stories, you know, they're, they're all different, but they all have unifying factors. So I concentrated on travel wrap story, and and now I'm trying to talk, build that and. Um, I worked with the CEO, Mead Barker, to, to create what we call a DNA doc. And the DNA doc is the roadmap. And, and that's kind of what you have to have to keep everyone on track. Now, the structural engineering company, you know, that's not a subject close to my heart. But, but I greatly admired the CEO, Derek Mason, because um, 
he is very, very talented. He built past the Olympic Village, uh, or he advised on it. He is a super athlete, an ultra, an ultra runner. He's won, the, I think he's won the Two Oceans race in South Africa over 10 times. Um, he's, um, and he's got a permanent number now because he's done it a lot. And he shows such grit and determination. He was told he would never make an athlete as a young man. Um, he obviously has become, you know, very significant. Um, and he transports that sports strategy into his business life. And I find that aspect of it very interesting. So I, I think whenever I sort of help with a company, I try and find out first, which bit of it can I empathize with? Because that will connect me in the right way. And then the other things I just slot into place afterwards. So I do a lot of interviews. I talk to a lot of people. I, I go home and I, you know, there's that famous scene, isn't it, in Ad Men, where Don goes into his office, slugs back a glass of whiskey and lies yeah. on the couch, goes to sleep, <laughs> wakes up with the idea. Well, yeah. I kind of like to do a lot of research, lift the lid, um, make a lot of notes. And then I stop and I think, what is this person's story? I call it the simple, single truth. What is it? And I think journalists are very good at that. Uh, whatever you think of the Daily Mail, and people have got very strong opinions about the Daily Mail, we were very successful because Paul Dacre had a very, very clear idea. Now Geordie Gregg is at the helm. But he had a very, very clear idea of what he would do to, um, to, to capture the interests of his readers and to build circulation. And if you look at the circulation figures of all national newspapers, the Daily Mail is the one that's climbing. It has the most watched news website, I believe, in the world. And that is because it understands itself. Whether you like it or not, it understands what it's doing. And, and companies that don't understand themselves, that don't build their story, really are destined always to kind of paddle in the shallows. I, I can remember interviewing, because I ran the business club, the Richmond Rugby's business club, attached to my magazine. And I met the chairman of Greg's in Durant. And um, it, it, Greg's is such a great company. You know, they, they literally started with a push bike and a wicker basket in the late 1930s. And they had two bakeries. They were successful, but the parents were exhausted. And the son decided, well, look, you know, we either get scared or we don't because my mum can't keep working this way. I think his father had died. And they became uh, eventually a PLC, not, but not just a PLC. They became a PLC that really understood its story. So when the miners were on strike, they reduced their price of, of, of a loaf by a penny. A penny every loaf was cheaper in those districts affected by the mining strike. And they, they run now. Britain's most successful and effective breakfast club for underprivileged children. And they do that alongside um, being successful. I mean, the launch of the vegan roll that was one crazy. of the most successful markets. Insane, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think that in a, in a little mini way, um, very, very mini, I, I try and build myself that way and I encourage my children to to do the same thing. So I've always helped charities alongside my work. I mean, in an ideal world, I'd like to help run a charitable foundation. Um, but I'm an ambassador for a local charity in Richmond called the Victoria Foundation. I do uh, a lot of work for them. And, uh, and you know, it, it has been a joy, actually. I, I think anyone 
that's enjoyed any kind of success in their career at some stage needs to think about giving back yeah 100 percent. i've come across so many people in broadcasting and media who who do take on these kind of charitable you know charitable endeavors as well um and it just seems like such a fulfilling activity to, to carry out uh once you've, you've reached some level of, of success um and then obviously you mentioned the Victoria Foundation there. Could you just talk to us a bit more about what you guys do over there and what, what, what you kind of seek to achieve? Yes, yeah, so it's a really interesting charity. And I, I I became their ambassador a long time ago because my children went to the same school in Richmond as the children of the development director, Lorna Vautier. And uh, she asked me to, to become involved. And, and so I have been all, all the way through now. Um, just before COVID, at the end, the end of the previous year, 2019, we all did the Camino uh, challenge to raise money for the charity. But what, and we do lots of challenges like that, and we have lots of events and we raise our profile locally. I think we're a very effective local charity. But what we do is that the, the charity was originally set up um, and attached to a private hospital, the, the, the Victoria Hospital. When the hospital closed, the funds went over to the charity the charity kept going. Now, now the hospital has reopened and the two work side by side. But what we principally do is we will make grants, um, give bursaries to children from underprivileged backgrounds who want to train as doctors and nurses or medics or physiotherapists. We will um, occasionally fund treatment, which isn't readily available on the NHS. So we support the NHS and everything we do. Um, and we will raise money for um, electric trikes, for electric wheelchairs. And we um, recently, uh, a couple of years ago, raised money for something called an inner walker. And an inner walker is, is a brace that keeps children who are in wheelchairs upright for part of the day. So whilst it doesn't directly affect their condition, it helps extend their life because their body's in the position it should be. So oh, there's, there's a couple of really fantastic schools locally and we support them. We've raised money for minibuses for the elderly as well. And, uh, and I just think it's a really, really great, effective charity. Yeah, no, it's such invaluable work that, that these foundations do. And, and especially when it comes mm. to health and, and helping people with disabilities, I just have limitless respect for them, basically. And it's you know, during COVID that a lot of focus was obviously shifted onto the NHS and, and the kind of, not the vulnerability of the NHS, but, but you know, how much we all value it um, as a mm. kind of, as a country. It's just so invaluable, the work that you guys are doing and, you know, really do respect it. And then Linda, we shift it onto this and it's, it's a question that we ask at the end of every podcast. Um, and some people find it a little bit harder than others, but you might well be uh, uh, prepared for this one. Um, and it's just if you could sum it up in, in one word and one word only, what do you envision for the future of the broadcasting industry? And, and that could be broadcasting the media, it could be the television. Uh, what do you envision for the future of broadcasting? So I think one word springs to mind, and that is fluidity. I think that things will be changing a lot. I think that those who can adapt will survive. I think people will need to be very versatile. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, some things remain the same. So you can learn lots of new skills. But actually, content is always king. And really, the ability to tell a story is, is, is ever-present. I mean, if you take it from the Neolithic age when people sat around a fire and told stories or the town crier or 
parables in the Bible, we learn by storytelling. So I think that will remain a constant, but the way we do it will be changing. And I think right now, people in the next six months to a year, not just in media or in broadcasting, but I think certainly we kind of got to surf the edge of chaos a little because, because it's only those people who will adapt who will thrive. Yeah. I was thinking, yeah, I just thought that the other day. It's, it's, you can add all the bells and whistles you want, but, but at the end of the day, it is the content that keeps people coming, isn't it? It's the content that secures advertisers, secures readership and things like that. Um, but I think fluidity is a brilliant word for it. And it's it's one that we haven't actually had before as well. So that's always nice. Um, so obviously, Linda, thank you very much for taking the time out and joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Are there any kind of exciting plans in the pipeline f- for you or, or, or River Tribe or the Victoria Foundation that you can talk to us about? I think uh, I'm working now on relaunching River Tribe. I'm hoping all goes well. It's always very tense being a publisher. I often say to people, you know, driving up the I-95 to cover the Twin Towers terrorism attacks was less stressful than running a local magazine because it, it, it's a big deal. Like to even, even being a small publisher, I think is a big deal. But I'm really, really looking forward to doing that. Um, I'm looking forward to doing more brand storytelling because I, because more people ask me about that now and it's something in which I'm really interested and it does fascinate me. Um, I think the Victoria Foundation, I think we're going to get us from strength to strength. Um, I, I've got a lunch coming up week after next with Trevor McDonald because so, uh, one of our supporters won it oh, <laughs> in an perfect. auction. So tre- uh, believe me, Trevor's the draw, not me. I'm just going to oil the wheels <laughs> oh, of conversation. But um, yeah. so, so we've got a couple of things coming up. I'm doing a live interview with Anne Sibber, who is the biographer of Ethel Rosenberg, who went to the electric chair for espionage in the US. Um, we've got another couple of big events culminating in our in our ball, which we hope can go ahead at winter time. It's normally at Twickenham Stadium, but this time it'll be at the Royal Mid Surrey. So we're really hoping now to 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 put some push behind the charity. So it's that it's it's the magazine. It's it's more storytelling, personal and professional. People should learn about how to express their personal story. Uh, and then alongside that the charity so that's for me that keeps me happy yeah and i'll I'll be keeping an eye on all of it i'm really excited to see what happens there um how can people get in touch with you if they want to inquire more about anything that that you provide so so more so the the kind of storytelling so i think if they want to get in touch about the magazine it's linda at rivertribe.co.uk but it's probably more likely that that considering the audits we're talking to that they might want to get in touch about media trend presentation coaching or storytelling that's either their corporate story or, or the business story or their own personal story and for that they should contact me on linda at lindadubily.com got it right and what we'll do linda will uh link off to the river tribe website and we'll also include your email in the podcast description as well so anyone on spotify apple podcasts uh you guys can access it there very so- kind yeah, once again, Linda, thank you so much for chatting to me today. I feel almost enlightened. Um, oh, good. You know, it's, it's just great to hear, obviously, all your experiences and, and everything you've got going on at the moment. It's just nice to hear that, you know, people have got exciting plans coming up, especially as we've we've just, you know, starting to come out the other side of COVID. And I'm a bit hesitant to say that, but it's, you know, it's just nice to hear that there's some exciting stuff coming up. Yeah, I think it's important to hope. You know, I'm not saying it's been easy. It hasn't. There have been times when it has been very, very difficult indeed.
and, uh, and you know, we've all been badly affected by COVID, I'm sure. But the important thing is to, to have leads, to have hope and to, to move towards build, building something um, meaningful. Yes. And I think fluidity is the, the word of the podcast, to be honest. I think that's, uh, you know, it's almost optimistic to me that everything's just got to keep on moving uh, and, and we'll get there eventually. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you very much, Linda. I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much, Neil. It was a pleasure talking to you. Cheers, Linda. You too. Okay. Bye now.